The fifth chapter to Franz Fanon's Black Skin, White Masks is probably his most famous chapter in the work, and for good reason. For me, it's not actually my favorite of his chapters. I really have a deep affection for his reflections on language in the opening chapter. But I think it's fair to say that the meaning and significance of that meditation on language in the opening chapter isn't really given its full uh, theoretical uh, apparatus until you get to the fifth chapter. The fifth chapter is, is really profound for me precisely because it gathers all the motifs from the previous chapters, really breaks them down into the basic existential categories of analysis, and then allows us, I think, to look back at them and see them in new ways, as well as prepares us for what we talk about, what, what I'll talk about in the next uh, podcasted notes, uh, the seventh and eighth chapter, the conclusion, but also the reflections on recognition in the seventh chapter. And I think that the reason why the fifth chapter is so important is exactly that, that it's where he gives such a precise, uh, in a narrative form, such a precise existential articulation of exactly what's going on in anti-black racism and its link to the white gaze. So really what I want to talk about today is this notion of the white gaze and how it functions in that particular chapter, in the fifth chapter. It also allows us to look backward and think about, uh, especially the opening chapter on language, but also uh, the uh, second chapter, uh, the discussion we had on that around uh, interracial uh, love and sexuality. Now, the title, as it's translated in the translation we're using, which is far and away the best translation of the two available by Richard Philcox. The title of the fifth chapter is The Lived Experience of the Black Man. But as I said in class, the poor translation of the previous version of Black Skin, White Masks, previous translation by Charles Markman, is actually quite instructive. Markman translates the title, the French title, as the fact of blackness. Now, there is no term blackness or fact in the actual French. So that's part of why Phil Cox, staying loyal to the French, translates it as the lived experience of the black man. That's a, a literal direct translation. But there's something really important for me about Markman's use of uh, or not use, but uh, indulgence of in translation to talk about the fact of blackness. Because really what the fifth chapter is about is how blackness operates as a fact in the world, a fact in the world that supervenes upon or, or you know, comes and casts its shadow and its full um, constraints on any person living that fact of blackness. Because a fact... In the case of a fact of blackness, a fact is something that is immovable in the world, that it's not open to revision or interpretation, but it is stuck in the world and we have to work with it as a matter of fact. Right? It's just a property of the world. It's an object in the world. It can't be re-described or reconceived. And that's exactly, I think, how blackness functions in the fifth chapter. Although that's a poor translation of the French. I mean, it's just way too indulgent and doesn't actually make much sense at all. I'm not sure why he made that choice, except as a reflection of the content of the chapter. It nevertheless really helps me 
you know, and that's why I mention it here and why I mention it in class whenever I teach this chapter. It, it really is a window into the content of the chapter. The chapter starts with a famous scene and it gets repeated across the chapter where um, Fanon talks about this, this child seeing him on the train. And the child says uh, one of two things, and it's unclear which he says, right? Um, although it is clear which he says, but it's unclear what he means and what he says. He says, look, a black man. But Fanon is immediate in that, uh, in that opening sentence, it's a quotation, to say what that means, look, a black man, is to say, look, an N-word, right? To infuse that with the most vile racial slur on earth. And what he means by that is that the way blackness functions as a fact in the world is that it is equivalent to, that it does function in the same way as a racial slur, right? That is, it may be a polite, in terms of the sociality of it, a polite way for a white person to refer to a black person, to say, look, a black man. But what's behind that, right, the way that category of blackness functions in the world is as pure abjection, right? As pure disgust and fear. And that's why the N-word is something that Fanon brings back into this and says we are saying, this child is saying the same thing. Now, how is this the case? Well, it's the case historically as we can all piece together a you know, sort of comic book narrative, right? The slave trade, slavery, you know, colonialism in the case of the Caribbean, segregation in the case of the United States, all are animated by uh, racism against people of African origin, right? But that tells you the origin story. It does not tell us very much about how that structure of anti-blackness is reproduced. It tells us how it's produced, right? It's produced the category of abject blackness, Right? or what the N-word uh, you know, means and how it functions as, a, as an expression of disgust and fear. We can tell a story about, about how that form of anti-black racism is what sustained all of these institutional forms of, of oppressing black people, slavery, the Middle Passage, the plantation, uh, you know, colonial rule, and so forth. But those moments of reproduction are especially important in a post-emancipation context. That is, after the abolition of slavery, how is it that anti-blackness gets reproduced? And it gets reproduced clearly, right, that the anti-blackness doesn't go away after the end of slavery. But it gets reproduced in these really important, uh, subtle ways, right, that it's carried through language. It's carried through the regulation of language. It's carried through the function of names and, and the way we are heralded or, or called by names, right? Look, a black man, look, a Negro. That's actually the, the translation that, that Phil Cox uses, which is the vernacular of the time in 1952. And so when he says, you know, the, the, you know the, when he's talking about the... the absolute lack of daylight between Negro and the N-word, right? He's saying something about the way our very language, even in its politest forms, our language about 
interracial, used in interracial space, not about, but used in interracial space, right? The space between white and black people, the only space he's actually concerned with. He's not talking about indigenous or Asian or any other sorts of, of demographics, right? Just the interracial space of white and black people. The way the term Negro functions, the way the term black functions, right? And the way these are attached to bodies and therefore intellects and therefore life possibilities and life actualities is what this fifth chapter is about. It's about how the use of language is animated by one thing and one thing only, the white gaze. That's important because the way the gaze functions is to look at something. So if we think about just even looking at any object in the world, if I'm looking at a chair, right, I can look at it and I can see the color blue because my gaze is directed in order to see a color in it. I can see, look at it and say, that's a chair, in which case the gaze forms this object in the world to be an item for use, right, for sitting on or for decorating a room. I can see it as, uh, I can look at it and say, that's metal because it's constructed of metal and my gaze is forming my attention in such a way that makes meaning out of this object to make it metal or blue or a chair or any other sorts of variations, right? We can enumerate many. But the point is that just at the level of perception, we are making these acts of, 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 of meaning formation through the gaze all the time. That's why you can look at one thing and two people see something different, right? Whether they see a, a color, uh, a, a substance, or a thing that's used in the world, or even attribute to it value. You know, that's beautiful, that's ugly. No, it's a chair, no, it's metal, no, it's blue. The gaze functions to organize our sense data in such a way that that sense data takes on meaning because of our gaze. Now, when Markman translated this chapter as the fact of blackness, now that gets really interesting because when you talk about a fact, you're talking about an object in the world, you really get at the way the gaze functions here in a social and political sense, right? Where the way the white gaze looks at the black body as an object in the world and infuses it with meaning, infuses it with the meaning of abjection, with the meaning of hate, with the meaning of exploitation, or an exploitable or disposable body, or simply, as Fanon keeps coming back to in that chapter and, of course, across the text, inferior or inferiority. So the white gaze functions to organize the meaning of the black body such that the black person, who is not the, just the body, but the person who animates the body, the white gaze forms that black body such that the black person can never escape what that gaze has um, made of it. The way the gaze has named that body as inferior, as a subject of empire, right? As a subordinate in my world, as a white person, as, as a person wielding the white gaze. And this is also then what, for Fanon, and this is what's so dispiriting and really pessimistic about the chapter, what's so, dis so difficult for Fanon in this 
and he comes he talks about this all the time when he's you know he's when he refers to the sort of french version of like a minstrel show and he's like i you know how do i do anything as a black person in a black body that could escape or move in any way outside the white gaze i can't move outside the white gaze because the white gaze will take anything that i do as a black person and affix meaning to it that just confirms or reifies my objection, my abjection as a black person, right? As a black body in an anti-black world. So, you know, we, you know, he uses an example elsewhere of, you know, if it's just simply by the act of dancing and dancing well, instead of taking pleasure in music and expressing that through his body, right? The white gaze fixes on that that it's a confirmation of all of these attributes that the white gaze gives to blackness that then degrade blackness, you know, just natural, just rhythmic, not rational, all emotion, all instinct, right? All of these, uh, these, these categories, right, that make anti-black racism work, they come through the gaze. And they don't just come through the gaze as a way of putting that you know, sort of from the perspective of white people, right, that then miss something, but rather in that the, you know, a black person could somehow evade or act differently and disconfirm. Part of the voraciousness, right, the omnivorous character of the white gaze, that it eats everything, that it, that it, that it's, it's, it seeks all aspects of black bodies and black people in order to give to them this abject uh, gaze and this abject status in, in our world, right, to reify anti-blackness. That means that its voraciousness is such that there is nothing that black people can do in terms of their own behavior that can't be captured by and controlled by the white gaze. In that way, I would say, I find the fifth chapter of Black Skin, White Masks to be by far the most pessimistic pessimistic chapter in the book there is such despair in his words right he quotes sartre's black orpheus at one point and you know about you know sartre says you know why would you think the black poet would have kind words for the white man after everything white people have done to them and he's like you know exactly right this is violence at its deepest level it's not the most visible violence, right? It's not dismemberment, it's not beating, it's not murder. But it's violence in the deepest sense in that it's through the gaze and through the gaze's voraciousness, its omnivorous character and its expansiveness and its endless, seemingly boundless energy that the white gaze is able to reproduce an anti-black world by getting white people to see black people in this way. And then this is the thing that, that Fanon struggles with so much in the opening chapter and in the introduction to the book, but also in this fifth chapter, the way the white gaze gets internalized by black subjects so that they no longer experience themselves as full subjects capable of agency and self-creation and world-making. Rather, when that white gaze is internalized, Right, black colonized black people, this is Fanon's claim, begin to suffer from the inferiority complex 
Now it's a complex because it's a, it's a full neurotic system, right? This is a psychological claim. That's a full uh, uh, neurotic condition, a full psychological condition that permeates all aspects of our existence or all uh, aspects of a black person's existence. So the white gaze is not content to just be a collective sort of consciousness of white people, but it takes that next step of instilling inside subjected black people, right? Black people in an anti-black world, even just lingering questions of self-doubt or lack of confidence at best, and at worst, a decimation of character, a decimation of esteem that leads to, you know, real senses of hopelessness, inferiority, and a sort of naturalness of submission. So if the fifth chapter is about the white gaze, it's about how the white gaze is at the center of Phil Cox's translation of the title of the chapter, right? The lived experience of the black man. That the lived experience of the black man is inseparable from the white gaze. It is inseparable from the white gaze because the lived experience of the black man is an experience in, in, in an interracial world in terms of the descriptions that he gives in the chapter. It's a lived experience in an interracial world, so you can't extract yourself in that world from the presence of the white gaze, that it exists even between black people. It's, it lives in that space too. That's, I think, one of the more provocative conclusions he's drawing in the chapter. And it's, it's one to think hard on, but it's also one that is really, really uh, dispiriting. That's why I call it pessimistic, it's deeply pessimistic. We don't really get a glimpse of what it would mean to move outside that until the seventh and eighth chapter. So that's the next piece. But here, it's just enough to say that the white gaze's function in the lived experience of the black man is in interracial space, right? The space that of white and black people interacting, but also more nefariously and really in some ways more, most destructively is present in the lived experience of the black man in an intra-racial space that is between black people. And when we start to see the white gaze functioning in both of those places, we get a full sense of what it means to call Fanon, Fanon's uh, depiction of colonialism as colonialism as a total project. That is nothing in the world, the psychological or embodied world, nothing in the world is untouched by colonialism, played out here concretely in terms of the white gaze. The white gaze is a total project. It occupies all aspects of the world, from the literary world, that's the second and third chapter, to the world of language, that's the first chapter, to, in this fifth chapter, the everyday experience of being black in an anti-black world. The white gaze is everywhere. And if it's total and it's everywhere, that's where colonialism and its aftermath carry their most power. Because if it's everywhere, then a society that does not extract that white gaze from the world, examine it, and find ways to destroy it, that society, any society that doesn't do that, simply repeats the white gaze, repeats colonialism, and repeats this structure of anti-blackness that lies not as an aspect of or on the margins of the world, 
but at the very heart of what it means to be embodied to oneself and to one another.